What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. Welcome to the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. Today, I'm having Dr. Paul Comfort with me. Uh, so, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you, Ivan. Thanks for the invite. Uh, so, before we start, can you talk a little bit about your background, your experience, and uh, what are you currently doing? Okay, so my background originally started off um, sort of personal training in that sort of area before strength and conditioning was really a thing in the UK. Um, and then started my degree in sports science, progressed from there to do a master's in exercise and nutrition science. Uh, when I finished that, I started lecturing down at Southampton University, uh, then moved across to work for um, a college in Southend-on-Sea in the UK for the University of Essex. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were quite short stays. Moved on from there to Middlesex University mm-hmm. in London. Yeah. Uh, stayed there for five or six years and then moved on to the University of Salford where I am now. Um, I've now been there for 10 years, completed my PhD while I was at the University of Salford. Uh, did that via publication. Um, so basically chipped away at getting things published in areas I was interested in, built up a body of research in one area, um, looking at weightlifting derivatives and formulated that into a into a PhD. Uh, during my time working in universities, I've continued to work with athletes um, sort of on the side, either as part of something I've been doing for myself um, or as part-time work, CPD, or through links with the universities. So the University of Salford has fantastic links with a whole range of um, football or soccer clubs, rugby league, rugby union, mm-hmm. uh, netball teams, etc. So we get all a, a small number of us get sent out as consultants to work with them, head up their sports science support in some cases, and guide them in sort of the areas that are need development. Um, so that keeps us very much involved with the day-to-day runnings of sports and sports clubs, which is fantastic. Um, It allows us to provide fantastic opportunities for our students on placement, or some of the clubs will fund them to come come back and do their master's degree or their PhDs, which is excellent. Um, But at the same time, it means we can apply our research in a real-world setting and also use the real world to conduct some of the research. Never as simple as you would like it to be. Um, but it, it means it's far more applicable and, and it keeps it very interesting. And then from our point of view, because we're not employed by the sports clubs, we can be very open and honest, which the head of performance or head of strength and conditioning may feel they can't do with the head coach or manager. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it was, I mean, when I was reading about the UK universities, it was always like brilliant. The, I mean, the structure uh, of the master's program or PhD program. So can you tell me, uh, for the Salford, are you working with the Manchester United or Manchester City soccer clubs? Um, yeah, we've, we've been doing work with them on and off for well, for the entire time I've been at the University of Salford. So for the last 10 years, um, they've funded some research projects. They send some athletes in for testing at different times. We've currently got a PhD student who's based at uh, Manchester United Football Club. Um, what 
some of our PhD and master's graduates work at uh, Man City, which is great. So again, obviously, you know, some people perceive a bit of a conflict of interest. That <laughs> All that information is obviously kept confidential and not shared between clubs. Um, but yeah, we do bits and pieces with them as and when they need to. They've all got fantastic facilities and staff. They've got almost everything they need there. Uh, it's just giving them some additional insight into how they may be able to do things more efficiently, um, how they may be able to interpret data better in a more sophisticated way. Um, so, yeah, we're always doing work um, with those clubs and with any of the rugby league and rugby union teams that are around as well. And some of that is in collaboration with other, other local universities and colleagues we have at other universities as well. Awesome. So great opportunities for for students. And it's easy to become an expert on that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, let's start with some questions. Um, well, isometrics have been swinging in and out of the performance world. Uh, however, some of the latest programs and philosophies in sport performance have included various forms of isometrics. What is your take on, on them at all? Um. Well, I think for if we look at it initially from the most simplistic point of view, use performing isometric testing. Isometric testing is it's a fantastic way of getting much greater insight to somebody's force generating capacity than just a one repetition maximum. One repetition maximum gives you purely that, the maximal load they can lift, that's it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're performing isometric testing, you also, if performed correctly, can find out how quickly they apply the force, whether it's through rate of force development, whether it's through force over specific time periods, so 50, 100 milliseconds, etc. So it can give you a much greater insight into their ability, not just their ability to produce maximal force, but how quickly they can they can produce that force, which is really useful. In terms of isometric training, um, yeah, it sort of goes in and out of fashion, and I think that's primarily because there's there's probably not enough evidence to support the use of isometric training for performance. Most of the research tends to be single joint, mm-hmm. uh, because it's easier to control, and then looking at changes in muscular tenderness properties, how that can affect stiffness characteristics, how it can be used for rehabilitation of tenderness injuries, etc. Now that's great, but you've got to bear in mind that is- isometric training is zero velocity. You get maximum force production, it's zero velocity, so you don't have that specificity in terms of um, the speed of movements. Or you may get the intent to move quickly, but there is no movement. Um, In which case, the adaptations tend to be joint angle specific, sort of plus or minus 10 to 15 degrees of that range of motion. So if you wanted to improve performance through your entire range of motion, you'd have to do isometrics at multiple joint angles. Um, which makes it a little bit more difficult and also time-consuming. And I think if you look at the research where it shows improvements in performance, it's an additive benefit. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at um, adding on isometrics to the end of your training session. So you get that very, very high load stress and strain on the tendons and you get adaptations in the tendon primarily, mm-hmm. but you've got all the um, force production throughout whatever whatever range of motion is appropriate for your athletes with whatever loads and velocities through your standard training. So it's, it's making sure it's just used to give that additive benefit um, rather than trying to do your whole training session is isometric right. or removing some of the strength training components, the dynamic training and putting isometric in its place. So it's just adding a little bit in the end, which certainly at the moment with the evidence which is out there seems to be the best way of um, implementing those types of exercise. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
Um, and the next one, uh, what is the dynamic strength index and what can we get from it? Okay, so dynamic strength index is the ratio of the peak force um, during an isometric um, mid-thigh pull normally compared to the peak force during either a squat jump or a counter movement jump. Um, some people have hypothesized you may be able to use peak force during an isometric squat, which yes, you may be able to, but I'm not aware of any research out there which has done that yet. Um, and the research does tend to have used either squat jump or counter movement jumps as squat jump, squat down, pulls, couple of second isometric hold and then just concentric only, mm -hmm. or the counter movement jump where there's the obvious counter movement stimulation of the stretch Jordan cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and that ratio gives you an indication of how well you can express maximum force dynamically. So the, the higher your ratio is, the closer your dynamic force production during the squat jump or the counter movement jump, the closer that is to the isometric force production, right. the better able you are to produce near maximal force in a dynamic situation. So it gives you an indication of whether you need to focus more on strength or force production or more on the expression of that force during more high velocity movements, ballistic and um, plyometric tasks, etc. Mm -hmm. However, um, one thing that we always stress to our students or any of the coaches, etc., that we work with is it's just the ratio. Mm -hmm. So you could have a fantastic ratio which shows that you can express force really, really well. Yes. But if you're weak, you just need to get strong. And in reverse, even though you may not be able to express force well, um, so your ratio is pretty poor, indicating you probably need to work more on plyometrics and ballistic training. If you're still really weak, you just need to get stronger. Yeah. There's, there's a large body of research out there. Some of the work from um, Cormy um, back in sort of 2010, 2011, which shows that with weaker athletes, if you get them stronger, they get just as much benefit in terms of power output and velocity of movements as they get from um, doing ballistic or plyometric training. So I think the simple thing there is, if your athletes aren't strong, get them strong first while working on their technique and their neuromuscular ability to perform ballistic and plyometric and dynamic tasks. And then when they're strong, you can really start focusing on the higher velocity movements. Yeah, but you're not interesting if you provide a simple solution like get under the bar and squat heavy weights. You're not a, you're not no, a good trainer. No, exactly. And, yeah. You know, it, it can get get boring providing, you know, rather basic training programs, you know, five sets of three reps, three sets of five reps, using squat variations, pull variations, something for the hamstring. It does look a bit boring. But if you look at the number of squatting variations you can perform, yeah. Um, you shouldn't really get bored. Yeah. But uh, I was so making a joke because it's really, you know, today yeah, no. <laughs> you need to be a clown. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. But the problem is that is what most people view it as. If you're doing the basics, it's boring. Um, and, you know, it's the same lecturing students in a university. When you're teaching some of the first year students, you might be itching to get on to the more interesting, Complex. the more yeah. topical stuff, your latest research. But they have to get the basics right first. Yeah. If a student doesn't, under, doesn't understand basic anatomy and doesn't understand basic physiology or biomechanics, they're never going to be able to understand the more in-depth, the more detailed research which you want them to understand so they can apply it appropriately. So with, with everything, it's setting those foundations and getting the basics right first, which unfortunately for most strength and conditioning coaches, it is get your athlete, get them to move properly and get them strong. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to do both. Completely agree. 
Um, about that DSI ratio uh, and the method, are there any differences between the methods frequently used to obtain it? Like, for example, uh, CMG versus squat jump? Uh, well, we published a paper recently looking at that in um, the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance purely to try and compare because we'd looked and seen that the research had used either squat jump or counter movement jump. So does it make a difference? Mm -hmm. We'd expect a slightly higher force during a counter movement jump because you stimulate the stretch shorten cycle and therefore should get a poten neurological potentiation right. effect. Um, you should get some force and energy back from the elastic components. But actually, we found there wasn't a lot of difference between the two, although the counter movement jump was more reliable. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably just from thinking back to when we collected the data. It's much easier to get athletes to perform a counter movement jump because they're used to it. Most activities in sport involve a counter movement and the stretch shorten cycle to get athletes to squat down, pause, hold it for a second, not move at all. And then perform a squat jump with no counter movement. And that's that's not just the legs moving. That can be the head moving. And if the head moves, you'll see the equivalent of a counter movement on the fourth time trace. Um, it's, it's difficult. People can't do it. So for simplicity, for ease of um, testing, for efficiency and speed of testing, it's probably best just to stick with a counter movement jump. Mm -hmm. Right. So about that uh, DSI ratio, um, how does uh, how does it relate to other sport performance characteristics? Uh, is there any research behind it? Yeah, there's a little bit of research looking at how it relates to performance in different athletic tasks. But again, it, it depends on how strong the athletes are. Of course. If you've yeah. got a stronger athlete, yeah. the strength levels or their their isometric force production or force at different time points relate better um, to performance and athletic tasks. So if you look at all of the studies and there's there's more than 50 studies now looking at isometric mid-thigh pull peak force. If you look, ju look just at peak force, it may not be the most meaningful, but it tends to have the strongest correlations to performance and athletic tasks and is the most reliable and stable of all the measures with isometric testing. Or certainly appears that way when you look across all of the literature. Um, that has a very strong correlation to dynamic strength testing. Um, some of the research by um, Professor Mike McGuigan um, and Dr. Jason Winchester shows almost perfect correlations with dynamic strength testing. Uh, and then when you correlate it to sprint jump performance, especially if it's ratio scale, so scale for body weight, um, again, it tends to show very strong correlations with performance and athletic tasks. Mm -hmm. So it's probably more important to look at how the max strength relates to performance in those tasks mm -hmm. rather than the ratio and use that DSI ratio to indicate whether you need to change your focus in your programming more towards pure strength-based training and increasing force production or more dynamic ballistic type training to help with the expression of that force production. Uh, but saying that, it's also interesting if you look at some of the research on early force production or um, rate of force development over very short time periods, that again, if you're not particularly strong, basic strength training um, improves performance and improves force or rate of force development in those really short time periods as effectively as more ballistic and um, plyometric type tasks until you get strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh you have better potential to develop power later when you're stronger. Yeah, if you uh, can express a higher level of force and then you train a person to express that quicker, um, you get a greater performance normally. Yes.
Agree. Um, let's talk about scaling for a moment. Uh, a lot of coaches in our community are using absolute measures while assessing and comparing athletes. Is that appropriate way to go or should we turn some, to some alternative ways uh, like ratio scaling or allometric scaling? Okay, well, I'm going to start off by saying something which my students hate when we say it, and it, it really does depend, and it depends on a range of factors. If you're looking at athletes that are throwing objects, um, absolute is probably okay, probably mm -hmm. adequate. Um, and if you look at weightlifters, again, that may be adequate because you're really only interested in the maximal load they can lift mm -hmm. um, as long as they stay within you know, a set weight category, etc. But in terms of when they're accelerating themselves, um, and you could argue with weightlifting, you accelerate your own mass as well as, as the barbell mass. But uh, if you're accelerating yourself, so jumping, sprinting, change of direction, etc., right. ratio scaling is better mm -hmm. um, because it takes into account your strength in relation to your your own body mass. Yeah. Um, and then you tend to get better relationships with performance in those tasks as well. It also allows you to compare. So if you look in in the UK, especially in rugby union. You can have somebody who weighs 130 kilos and somebody that weighs 90 kilos in the same squad. That person that weighs 130 kilos obviously will normally or should appear when you look at absolute measures much stronger than the person that weighs 90 kilos. Ratio scale it, that sometimes flips around. Um, and that certainly appears to be the case um, when you ratio scale um, performances for a lot of rugby union and rugby league athletes. I would assume it's probably similar similar with American football as well because you've got different you know statures of those players based on position. So it's really important then because they have to accelerate their own mass. It's really important to use the ratio of scaling. Mm -hmm. You also want to compare across sexes, so males to females, age groups, etc. You, you've got to um, use ratio of scaling to make it fair. Mm -hmm. the, the average male athlete in a sport is obviously much heavier than the average female athlete in a sport. Therefore, to have any comparison, which is fair, mm -hmm. um, it needs to be based on their, their mm -hmm. body mass. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that scaling using ratio methods may in fact bias the results in favor of the, for example, lighter guys? Uh, it can do, um, but again, that tends to be more the fact that your when you scale it, you base it on body mass in general because it's quick easy to do and really useful and you have to accelerate your entire mass but again maybe a bit of a generalization but the heavier athletes also tend to carry higher percentages of body fat yeah so they're disadvantaging themselves really <laughs> if they you know if they were that heavy if they were up at the 120 130 kilograms um sorry for anyone that works in pounds but i can't do the conversion it always gets me confused even though it's simple um i'll get the numbers wrong um if you've got somebody at 120, 130 kilos with 20% body fat compared to somebody at um, 90 kilos with 6% body fat, the, the disadvantage of ratio scaling is it doesn't take into account the percentage of body fat. However, when you're jumping, sprinting, you have to accelerate that fat as well as the lean tissue. So um, it may bias it slightly, but my view is more that actually the athletes bias themselves by carrying too much fat. Right, right. I agree. Okay, let's go with the serious stuff right now. <laughs> uh, a lot of SNCs are looking at uh, weightlifting movements, and I mean full weightlifting movements, as the holy grail of strength and conditioning. Yep. You and your colleagues did quite a few papers lately questioning the rationale of the weightlifting movement utilization with athletes that are not weightlifters. So yep. can you please 
expand on this one as much as you like. Right, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, weightlifting movements are really, really efficient and effective at developing not only power but strength as well. You know, you can use a huge load during those exercises. Um, there are disadvantages with basic strength training, although you have to get your athletes strong. You have to use squatting movements. You have to use deadlift movements. You know, if you can't effectively deadlift the bar from the floor with good technique, you can't perform a Romanian deadlift. You're going to struggle when you're in the hang position or you know, pulling from the knee. You're going to struggle to do the first pull and get the bar off the floor if you can't deadlift effectively. If you can't front squat or overhead squat, you're going to struggle to catch the bar on the clean or the snatch. So you have to do that first. There's simple exercises to coach athletes to do. And there's pretty much an unquestion unquestionable body of knowledge going that improving performance in tasks such as, as squats, mm -hmm. squat variations, enhances performance. Right. Now, we don't know if it's the best method, but it, it does work. Mm -hmm. But there is a problem that, especially at lighter loads, there's a deceleration component with standard um, strength-based lifts. If you continue to accelerate throughout the entire range of a squat, you would jump. Mm -hmm. um, you may not want your athletes doing that with really heavy loads on their shoulders because they may, be, may not be able to land it correctly. Uh, you've got the compressive forces when they land, etc. So there's that deceleration component. So, you know, you wouldn't want to use squatting with a, you know, the load which optimizes power output around 50 to 60% of 1RM, depending on how you assess that and the strength of the athlete. That's not going to effectively develop power. Right. <clears throat> because the second half, the last 50% of the range of motion is deceleration. Right. Unless you make it a ballistic task where you're jumping. But then with a the ballistic task, you accelerate throughout the entire range of motion, but you have the issues with landing it safely, compression on the spine, etc. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if you do, if you jump high, if you end up jumping 20, 30 centimeters, that doesn't sound high, but 20, 30 centimeters with a load on your back is, is right. enough. You've got gravitational acceleration down. Yes. You've got to keep the bar in contact. You've got to land with a compliant strategy. Um, so you flex ankle, knee, and hip to absorb those forces. And then as the athlete fatigues, that happens less and less. So it makes it a little bit more, more difficult and possibly slightly risky. Um, whereas if you use the Olympic lifts uh, or different weightlifting exercises, you've, you accelerate through the entire range of motion. Right. And if you do it effectively and you're doing the full clean or the full snatch, um, not a power clean or a power snatch, you can use much heavier loads mm -hmm. um, than you can with a power clean or power snatch because you don't have to displace the bar as high. Mm -hmm. And you should catch the bar near its peak displacement. So if you're catching the bar near its peak displacement, the loading when you catch is not much greater than the loading that you get from doing a, a, a depth jump mm -hmm. because you're decelerating your mass. And then if you look back at some of the early studies that Garhammer did and look at some of those um, bar path curves that he's got on there, there's about a three or four centimeter um, negative displacement of the barbell. Right. So you catch it three or four centimeters below its peak displacement if you're competent. Mm -hmm. Now, there is that bit that if you're competent, yeah. uh, as an example, um, I won't name any of my students that we were doing some of this with yesterday, but some of them were catching the bar 30 40 centimeters below its peak displacement and luckily they caught that more in a power clean position or a power snatch position and rode it down they didn't drop full depth and then wait for the bar to drop on them but that does happen occasionally um and you know they're inexperienced 
So the loading during the catch phase actually isn't as much as you would expect it to be. And we can probably come back to that bit a little yeah. bit later. It's quite a contentious point. Um, so it doesn't appear to give you a huge stimulus for eccentric loading, acceptance of force, etc., because it's comparable to a depth jump. At the same time, you can't effectively analyze how how much sort of neurological stimulation is that via EMG to the trunk muscular to, mm-hmm. to see does it help with bracing, etc. Right. Because the bar passes so close to the trunk, if you put EMG electrodes on the rectus abdominis, it's going to pull them straight off. Mm-hmm. We are looking at a way of trying to do that. Mm-hmm. We haven't figured out yet. And I know there's a few <laughs> other um, very good researchers around the world looking at the same sort of issues. So we may be able to answer that. But again, just from, you know, I'm not a competitive weightlifter by no stretch of the imagination. But for any person that commonly performs weightlifting movements, the clean or the snatch, if you are catching in a good position with good posture near the peak displacement of the bar, you don't really have to brace that much. You're in a really solid position to receive right, it. Right, right. Um, so it, it may not create huge amounts of muscle activation. No. The timing of that activation may be important because if you think about it you get rapid triple extension of hip knee and ankle um, really high levels of force production and then you quickly switch everything off and relax pull yourself underneath the bar but then have to get everything fired up and switched back on to decelerate yourself and then receive the bar so you'll go from what i would assume would be low levels of activation when you drop into the catch position mm-hmm. to when you receive the bar they're going to be quite high so it's probably the timing aspect which is is going to be really important there and not necessarily the magnitude of force production or emg etc um but that's something that we don't know at the moment we've only got forces mm-hmm. we haven't got all the other aspects of it and that's something we need to try and do ideally i'm, I'm going to give away all, all the things we're looking at now but ideally looking at synch- synchronizing full 3d motion analysis with the force with the emg monitoring bar path as well as joint segments etc and for anyone listening that's had a go at using all of those bits of technology together putting the markers on for 3d motion analysis and that's not my area of expertise putting the emg electrodes on and then performing something like a clean or a snatch and not knocking those markers off or destroying the emg electrodes is not an easy task um so that's something we're gonna have to try and figure out later on to hopefully answer some more of those questions And then, then we'll have a much better answer. But in terms of the weightlifting derivatives and, and and exercises themselves, I think the key thing is that you know even the very early research by Hakkinen, Inoka, Garhammer, mm-hmm. whether it was looking at force production, um, which was the, were the studies by Inoka and Hakkinen, they basically demonstrated that the second pull generates the highest forces. And if you look at some of their um, figures in their articles, the rate of force development is also much higher during that second pull phase. If you look at the work of Garhammer, looking at barbell velocity, mm-hmm. uh, the highest powers and barbell velocities occur during the second pull phase. So what we wanted to know when we first started looking at this research, and it actually came from questions from some of our students that were saying, well, you teach us to do um, variations from mid-thigh, from the knee, um, all sorts of different variations of the, these exercises, which are better. And mm-hmm. we trawled through the literature and said, well, we'll hold our hands up. We don't know. No one's done it. 
<laughs> so then we started looking at that and that's where really the questions came from questions from from some of our students those that were athletes those that were working with athletes to try and find out if we start at mid-thigh if we start at the knee if we start from the floor how does that affect all the different kinetic kinematic uh, parameters and outputs awesome. and what we found was that the, the second pull phase um, so from mid-thigh was preferential mm-hmm. um, and that was comparing power cleans from the floor from the knee and from mid thigh and we've replicated that a couple of times to find exact, exactly the same trends for both force power rate of force development um, Dr. Tim Sukumau, um read some of the research and then decided he'd get on board and look at some other variations so Tim then looked at the hang power clean mm-hmm. jump shrug and hang high pull now, there's a bit of a difference there, and this is something we're looking at in more detail at the moment, that with the way that they were performed, they were all started from that right position and then lowered the bar down, almost like the lowering phase of a Romanian deadlift to the knee, and then from there, initiated that transition or that scoop phase and went through the full triple extension from that position, whereas ours was static from mid-thigh, from the knee, mm-hmm. from the full. Right. And so we've started to compare the adding that counter-movement phase to not adding it, to doing it from static. But um, Tim Sukumel's research then showed that the jump shrug elicited the highest force, power, and mm-hmm. velocity. And again, that's not surprising because you're jumping. Mm-hmm. you're not right. cutting that triple extension slightly short when you get to the top of the range of motion and you're aiming to get off the ground if you put the, the same intent and the same force into the floor with the hang high pull or the hang power clean again you would actually jump now you may slightly mm-hmm. but you're probably cutting short just uh, just very slightly that full force production through the final few degrees of range of motion that you'd get with a jump truck and the nice thing there is the jump shrug is really easy to teach. You right. can teach that within, you know, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. As long as they can maintain, you know, the correct spinal alignment, it's really easy to do. Or simpler than that is mm-hmm. the counter shrug. So just starting stood upright and dipping down to mid-thigh rather than all the way to the knee and then jumping from there, which again seems to elicit similar sort of powers, rates of force development, mm-hmm. etc. Although there's no direct comparison in any of the research yet. Uh, the interesting thing with some of Tim's research is he went on to look at the effect of load as well and find that um, irrespective of load, the jump shrug gave higher power outputs, velocities, force, etc. than the hang power clean or the hang high pull. Now, there's probably one word of caution there with the hang high pull, and we've seen this certainly with the rugby players. If you've got an athlete with a very strong upper body, the hang high pull tends to become a more upper body dominant exercise mm-hmm. rather than a lower body, um, and they focus on pulling the bar with their arms. Yeah. So that's something you just have to observe and coach. Usually, and, yeah. you know, if your athletes are doing that, do a different variation of the exercise. Do the hang power clean or do the jump shrug, um, which then stops them pulling the bar with their upper body. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tim looked across a range of loads from 30 up to 80% of one repetition maximum and found obviously as load increased um, the general trend was that force uh, force went up velocity came down right. Um, right. power decreased on all exercises except for the hang um, power clean mm-hmm. and that peaked around 65 to 80% of one around there was no difference between the two and 
<clears throat> so we then sort of progressed on from there and started looking at the effect of loading. If we've excluded the catch phase, so we just do the mid-thigh pull, because in our early work we found that the mid-thigh pull and the mid-thigh power clean gave us similar values in terms of all the kinetic and kinematics that we'd assessed. So force, power, rate of force development, mm -hmm. velocity. Mm -hmm. If you exclude the catch phase, okay. we can go above our 1RM. So obviously you can't exceed your 1RM because you're limited with the load you can catch. Mm -hmm. But if we exclude the catch and just do a pulling variation, we can go much higher. We tried initially in some pilot work going as high as we possibly could. And what we tended to find is that across a range of different collegiate level to professional athletes, 140% of 1RM was the highest most people could do competently and confidently. Some people would get up to 160% of 1RM, but most people couldn't do that and maintain the correct posture or perform the exercises you'd, you'd want them to perform it. So we then looked at <coughs> assessing from 40% of 1RM right the way up to 140 and find, as you would expect, a progressive increase in force production right. with higher loads and a progressive decline in velocity um, with higher loads. So highest velocities and powers at the lighter loads, highest forces at the, the higher loads. And the interesting thing was, and this wasn't included in, a, in any of our actual write-up for the research, but um, the, at 140% of 1RM, for most of those athletes, that was around about their 1RM back squat. Mm -hmm. So they're pulling loads which are comparable to what they would do in maximal sort of squat training. Um, and for some of them where we had deadlift data, that was similar to sort of their 3 or 5 RM on a deadlift as well. Mm -hmm. So... Actually, if you're doing these pulling variations, they are really high loads that may help with um, strength development at the same time. Right. right. But I think the key take-home message is light loads, focus, velocity, okay. uh, and power, and high loads, focus, force production. Obviously. But you need to train across that entire force-velocity continuum. Um, and you can see that in one of the reviews that we did for the Strength and Conditioning Journal that Tim Sukumel led and then myself and Jason Lake helped him with. Um, which was published earlier this year. Yeah. And it tells pretty much the same story, only focusing on weightlifting derivatives, but it tells the same story as what um, Greg Half and Sophia Nymphius um, published in the Strength and Conditioning Journal, I think it was back in 2012, yes. looking at you know, a mixed method approach and yes. training for force velocity continuum. Um, we need to add additional exercises in there. We need to do a lot more research. We need to include more strength-based exercises so we can look at it across a whole continuum. But hopefully it's quite informative to the practitioner. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to the catch phase, uh, uh, can we find any benefit around it? I mean, from it? Uh, let's say, uh, what about development of the capacity to cope with the mechanical demands of deceleration and impact? This is quite important for some collision sports, let's say rugby or American football. And a lot of people are saying this in defense of weightlifting movements. Yep. So yep. can you elaborate that a bit? Yeah, well, I think first of all, you know, myself, um, Tim Sukumau, none of us are saying that you shouldn't do the catching um, <laughs> variations. Um, there definitely is a place for them in training, and if your athletes can perform them, get them performing them. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you look at the figure that we put into the Strength and Conditioning Journal, there's a there's a band, and I think it's figure two, of grey right in the middle of, yes. of the two. And that basically shows that all of those different exercise variations around those loads from maybe 50 to 90% of 1RM, the, the effects you get are comparable. 
right. um, in terms of the propulsion phase. Mm-hmm. So if your athlete can catch, brilliant, get them catching. Um, if they can't, or if with some people, when you're coaching them, if you find they're cutting that triple extension short to get underneath the bar and catch it, you probably need to get them focusing on some more pulling components if your focus is propulsion and yes. force development throughout that entire range. Uh, as I mentioned earlier with the catch phase, the problem is it doesn't really add a huge amount of loading if you're performing it well. And in uh, two of the studies that we've published where we've looked at it, that sort of the loading phase or the catch phase, one of them was termed the loading phase because it didn't actually include a, a catch within it. Um, and if you're looking at a jump shrug or if you're looking at a mid-thigh pull, mm-hmm. there is no catch. So it's it's the, the point at which you then receive the load. You go through that propulsion phase, the bar reaches its peak displacement, and then you have to decelerate on the way down. Now, if you think about this, <clears throat> and when you perform that, the bar will displace up quite high depending on load. So the bar may reach the height of your sternum with a mid-thigh pull right. or a jump shrug. When you decelerate it, it doesn't continue decel. It doesn't finish decelerating until it reaches mid thigh again. That's a substantial displacement. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of time for reacceleration back down towards the ground right. for not only the barbell but your own mass as well as you flex ankle and hip to absorb those forces. Whereas if you do a power clean, you should catch near its peak displacement, mm-hmm. and if you do a clean, you should catch near its peak displacement. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even think when we looked at um, conducting these studies where we looked at the loading in the catch phase that you would get really high loads mm-hmm. during the pulling variations, but you do because of the nature of that reacceleration of the bar back down to the ground. And when you catch, it doesn't appear to add an additional load. There's even a, a study um, that we found was published before we looked at some of this by Mulek et al., which, and I may have pronounced that name wrong, so apologies if I have, <laughs> um, but they found that it was com- the um, loading during the power clean was comparable to that of a, um, a depth jump. Mm-hmm. So the landing from dropping off, a, I think it was a 30 or 40 centimeter box. Right. That's easier to teach an athlete than to catch. So if your athlete is struggling with catching, then there are lots of different alternatives with plyometric drills, landing from dropping off high boxes, which are really easy to teach, really easy to coach. Ensure that you get correct lower limb alignment. You can look at injury prevention from there. You can look at landing in a split position if you want to replicate the sort of position you'd be in for change of direction. Although when you're thinking of change of direction one of the important things to consider is it's not that final foot contact that actually does a lot of the deceleration mm-hmm. uh, and one of our phd students uh, tom de santos and um, he can't take all the credit for it, his phd supervisor uh, dr Paul jones and also one of the guys that used to work with us previously um dr phil graham smith that now works out um at, a, at Aspire, mm-hmm. uh, had looked at some of this and got some preliminary data in this area. But the, fi- the penultimate foot contact is the one that tends to do most of the deceleration during change of direction tasks. Right. Now, that's with things like a 505 change of direction. It may be slightly different in a sporting context. The longer run-up, mm-hmm. it may be the 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 foot contact before the penultimate step. If you're moving at a higher velocity, you'll have to decelerate over a greater number of steps. Um, so with some different plyometric tasks, landing tasks, you can make your athletes land in different foot positions. Again, you could argue maybe catching in a split position with clean or snatch if you can do that. 
um, but adds another level of complexity may be useful or doing um, split jerks where you have to decelerate. But again, if you're performing a split jerk, really you should be catching that barbell near its peak displacement. So right. you're really only decelerating your on the way down. So it's questionable as to how beneficial it would be. But it's worth bearing in mind that performing the full lifts, whether it's the, the clean, the snatch, the power clean, the power snatch, it develops a certain level of athleticism. Right. To go from that rapid triple extension with a high force production into rapid triple flexion, whether it's full range of motion, partial range of motion, and then brace and decelerate and maintain the correct posture, that's not an easy thing to do especially when you consider the movement velocities. Um, so it's, it takes a certain level of athleticism, although that can be trained by other things. And I think it depends on the, the scenario you're working within. If you've got um, young athletes and you're developing them over a period of years, develop their ability to do everything. Get them be capable of doing all these different types of tasks, there will be benefits. But if you're working with a senior squad of athletes and half of that squad and this is being sort of generous, half of the squad can't perform four lifts. There's nothing you can do. You've got to get them to do other variations. Right. And certainly with some rugby teams we work with, there's a lot of people with some not very healthy shoulders is probably the polite way of putting it. Uh, you know, they've had so many shoulder injuries from contact, from training, etc. Can't get in position to catch. They can't get in in position to receive the bar with a snatch, with a clean. Uh, some of them can't even overhead lift confidently because of the number of injuries they've had to the shoulders. So in those situations, we've got some fantastic alternatives just with doing pulling variations. Right. Right. And if you want to go to those heavier loads, you have to pull. You can't catch mm -hmm. because it's above your one RM. So catching definitely plays a role. It may have some benefits. But in terms of eccentric loading, there's probably better options out there. Um, and in terms of um, bracing, absorbing impacts, etc., if you're performing it well, there isn't a huge impact force because you catch the bar near its peak displacement. Right. Uh, like I said earlier, there's lots of research that we still need to do. And I say we globally, not just myself and some of the people I conduct research with, but it would be nice to see more people getting involved and looking at this and tackling um, some of these questions because we, we can't do it all ourselves. Um, and it will fill in some of the gaps where, you know, some of it is hypothetical. We just don't know with some of those questions. Mm -hmm. But from the information that's out there, it, it may not be as beneficial as some people think um, in terms of bracing, deceleration, etc. Awesome. This was a very beautiful explanation of the literature here. Um, now, you mentioned the, the power production uh, across the load. So my question is, when it comes to peak power production, what is the optimal load? I can see a lot of talk about the optimal load, but, it's, uh, but I think that research is not quite clear on this one. And everybody says like something like, 80% 1RM of what, and uh, is that really 80% of 1RM of yeah, what? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> again, it, there's, there's a whole range of factors here that influence this. Um, and some of it is, I suppose initially you've probably got to look at the method that's been used to assess power output, mm -hmm. and that definitely impacts the the load, which um, elicits peak power. So if mm -hmm. you look at some of the studies that Cormi did um, way back in 2007, Seven. 2008, yeah. um, those studies used multiple different methods. Mm -hmm. um, so you had 
forward dynamics using a force plate, inverse dynamics using barbell velocity, combined methods, etc. And without getting into all the details of that, because we'll be here for another two hours, um, <laughs> that massively impacts the load that elicits peak power output. And it also depends whether you're looking at peak power output or the highest mean power output. Yeah. Um, so, again, I'm, I'm not going to get into all of that, we'll be there, there no, for ages. No, no. But uh, most people are now moving towards using force plates and forward dynamics. Right. Because it tells you about the velocity of the system, mm -hmm. the center of mass of the system. And even if you look at, there's a study by Dr. Jason Lake, um, which I think is, in, is titled Barbell Kinematics Should Not Be Used to Assess Lower Body Power Output, right? something along those lines anyway, where it shows that even with something like a squat, <clears throat> where you think that the barbell is moving in line with the center of mass or the system center of mass, it's not. That It's still skewed, depending on whether you look at the velocity of the system, the individual center of mass or the barbell, there's a variation of up to, I think it was 18 or 19% difference in velocity um, between those um, three different systems that, that were measured. And that impact, if that's during a squat, when you then consider if you do a clean or go to the extreme, a snatch, where the barbell starts below your center of mass and it finishes way above your center of mass, that's going to skew the results right. even more. So... It's, it's not a simple question to answer, unfortunately, yeah. but the method does massively impact that. Yeah, that's, that's if we look key. at it from the, from the velocity of the system center of mass, what the research seems to indicate as is that if you're performing the full clean or power clean, the higher loads, 80% of 1RM, maybe up to 90% of 1RM with full clean mm -hmm. um, or the full snatch is probably going to be the optimal load to elicit peak power output. Now, if you look at the studies that have used barbell velocity with weightlifters, they're always up at the 90, 95% of 1RM. That's not surprising. They don't train with light loads. So that's probably specificity. Right. It's an adaptation to, or a specific adaptation to the imposed demands that they've had um, during training. You know, you don't very often see competitive weightlifters down at the 40, 50, 60% of 1RM. Yeah. Um, so they're probably not accustomed to producing high velocity movements and high powers at such light loads or what would be a light load for them yeah so with the power clean um it tends to be around the 80 percent full clean it, it's up at the 1995 percent um if you look at going from the knee um mm -hmm. the loads are possibly slightly lower down at the 70 percent mid thigh depends on the research it's somewhere between 40 and 60 percent mm -hmm. however if you look at that research even though the peaks occur at if we go from mid-thigh 40 to 60%, from the knee around 70, from the floor around 80, there's not a statistically significant difference. And if you calculate the effect sizes, it's generally not meaningful. 10% mm -hmm. um, either side of those loads. Right. Which means for most of your athletes, you can train across a bit of a spectrum there. Yeah. So you could start at 70% and build up to 90%. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get close to peak power for most people if you're doing the power clean. You could start at the 40% and build up to 60% with the mid-thigh variations. However, you, if you want to focus on velocity, you might, might start at the higher load mm -hmm. and progressively decrease loads so you've got a higher velocity of movement afterwards, depending on what your, your end goal is with that phase of training. But again, it, it's not just a case of chasing the load which elicits peak power. That may elicit peak power, but does that give us the greatest adaptive responses? 
And there's not a lot of research out there to tell us whether it does or not. There was a study by um, Dr. Harris, which looked at using the optimal loads during squat jumps, and it was a hack squat machine. And they have people jumping with their individual optimal load or 80% of one Mm -hmm. Those Some of those guys were squatting on the hack squat machine 300 kilos, so they were jumping with way over 200 kilograms mm-hmm. uh, compared to people that, was, that were jumping with around about 40% of their 1RM, which mm-hmm. is still very high for squatting 300 kilos. Right. And they actually didn't show any real noticeable difference between training at the moderate load and the high load, um, or the, the Pmax load, the optimal load for power. However, when you look at that study, I think it was around about 20% of their training volume was d- done at Pmax load done at the optimal load for that exercise the rest of it was all standard training so whether 20% of your training being performed at the optimal load is adequate to create an adaptive response um, which is preferential is debatable Uh, I think the key thing is as long as you train going back to the article that I mentioned by um, Dr. Greg Half and Dr. Sophia Nymphius in Strength and Conditioning Journal back in 2012 you have to train the full um, force velocity spectrum you need some high load activity in there if you don't continue to train at high load your ability to produce force decreases and as force is mass times acceleration if your ability to produce force decreases your ability to accelerate your mass is likely to decrease so you need to maintain force production even during periods of training where your focus is more velocity or power based mm-hmm. but even when you're doing high load exercises and your focus is strength some components of your training need to be high velocity. Right. Now, some can be during your, your warm-up sets. Right. But you probably need a high-velocity movement in there as well to make sure you maintain the athlete's ability to express force very quickly. Uh, so the optimal loads, and, you know, I've published research looking at the optimal loads with power cleans, etc. Um, it's probably not as important as we thought it was five years ago, maybe even less. Um, And what's probably more important is that you train across that full force velocity continuum. You get the high load activity in there, you get the high velocity in there, and that will train that entire spectrum where peak power is going to occur somewhere along there, and that will depend on the exercise, the strength of the athlete, how you assess it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's probably not worth overcomplicating it. It's probably worth just training that full spectrum of force and velocity with correct selection of exercises and correct selection of loads um, and changing the emphasis so there's more of a force emphasis in your strength um, or strength speed phase and more of a velocity emphasis in your speed strength phase of training Mm -hmm. Um, without worrying about trying to assess all of your athletes individually and identify their individual um, optimal loads for power output during every exercise they do you're going to spend your whole life testing really? so it's probably okay <laughs> keep it simple and get to the, get the basics right yeah. as you said that's probably not the message people want to hear they probably want to hear something really you know here's the magic bullet this is the the really interesting or sexy way of training this is the most <laughs> novel way of doing it but the, the basics work yes yeah people don't want to realize that but yeah um you actually started to answer my follow-up question and that is how would you approach the periodization of pulling dairy weights across certain phases of preparation period to achieve optimal strength power and RFD adaptations, of course, with respect to force velocity curve? You don't have to go in depth just uh, because obviously certain pulling dairy weight is more appropriate during a certain phase of training uh, yep. than some other. So 
just your take on that. You, that actually, that is from the paper, uh, from your paper from Strength Conditioning Journal, your review that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, well, I think the the key thing is is making sure that you you identify the key goals for your individual athlete or group of athletes. Um, so, for some of them, if they're not very strong, um, to increase strength you need to lift heavy to increase power right. you need to get them stronger so you need to lift heavy and to increase <laughs> velocity you need to get them stronger so they can accelerate their mass so they need to lift heavy if they're not strong um, now that doesn't mean you just say right we're going to spend the next six months training strength you would shift the emphasis mm-hmm. um, but you'd start off developing the basics you need their work capacity you need their skill level so you may start off with more strength endurance with a a traditional sort of block approach to periodization Um, you can use some of the pulling derivatives and you can cluster them so there's some fantastic work that um greg haft started right over a decade ago looking at now and yeah one of his phd students james tefano has done some fantastic work in that area although Mm -hmm. applied to um strength and hypertrophy um, but it's definitely worth worth a read looking at, at some of that, that research and what I would assume would be a growing body of evidence coming out in the future. Um, so you can cluster those exercises so you can still perform. You wouldn't want to perform um, sets of 10, 15 repetitions with snatches or cleans normally because they're technically demanding. Aerobically, if you try doing sets of 10 or 15, <laughs> right. uh, it's pleasant. Your technique deteriorates. But if you put them into a cluster, so it may be five lots of three to give you 15 repetitions. Right. And if your athlete is, the, if the technique is deteriorating, you could even start that set of snatches. Mm-hmm. You might do three repetitions, another three repetitions. If their ability to catch is diminishing, you then may change that just into pulling. Right. Um, while you're coaching them there and then. If they can catch all the way through, fantastic. If they can't, don't worry. Uh, because your aim is probably the propulsion phase of that. So you're, you can also use that you know, 10, 15, 20 second rest between clusters to coach them. Mm-hmm. What, hap- what What could they do better next time? Are they really emphasizing that rapid acceleration, full triple extension? Mm-hmm. And that really helps. It's difficult if you've got a huge group of athletes and only yourself, but if there's you with some strength and conditioning uh, assistance, interns, etc., you can get some of that coaching in there or get the athletes to coach each other and give each other feedback. So you start off building that work capacity, making sure the technique's correct. Right. Um, with still a bit of higher load work in there, you move on to a general strength phase. While you're doing the general strength phase, you'll still have some higher velocity movements in there as well. Mm-hmm. But focus, the majority of your training program, probably 75, 80% will be higher load. Then progress it to max strength. Um, so higher load still. And at this point, if you go max strength, that's when you can probably start with the super maximal loads above 100% of your 1RM right. um, pulling derivatives. And then when you're moving to more of a, a speed strength or a power phase, you're probably going to do the higher velocity movements first um, with some of the higher load movements towards the end because the emphasize is speed of movement. And the other thing to bear in mind is if you're going into a competitive phase or if you're in a team sport environment yeah. where they're, they're competing every Friday, Saturday or Sunday, you know, competing at the end of the week, um, certainly the way we get it with some of the rugby teams in this country, mm-hmm. your session closest to... Um, competition, you want to decrease the volume. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Simple ways of doing that. Um, if you were doing pulls from the floor, do mid thigh pulls. Mm-hmm. Now, if you work out volume load as sets times reps times 
either load on the bar or system right. system max, um, that will look the same. But actually, if you think about adding displacement into this, um, and again, this is something I'm, I'm sure Greg has touched on it in something in the past. I know Guy Hornsby uh, and Dr. Mike Stone are, are keen on looking at displacement. And we're actually working on some research in that area now where if you quantify the volume of work done in a training session, including displacement of the bar, you can actually create a, a sort of a tapering or an unloading effect by decreasing the volume of work. Mm-hmm. just by shifting the emphasize again if you think about it, if you're doing a pull from the floor with a let's say 100 percent one rm mm-hmm. power clean right um, you've got a, a large displacement on our barbell right it's, you're going to d- displace that well over a meter well depending on your height if you're only you know five foot tall you may not displace it a meter but if you then compare that to how far you'll displace the bar when you're pulling from mid thigh there's going to be a massive reduction in the volume of work that you've performed right so you can manipulate both the intensity of the exercise and the exercise itself so the volume of work you're performing can decrease at an appropriate time um, but again i suppose with that appropriate periodization one of the things you have to make sure you do is that you still have a strength or a high load component in there so you don't decrease in force production but the volume of that needs to massively decrease so that they can recover they can adapt and they can hopefully peak at the important points in competition yeah yeah so we should train complementary in every phase after all yeah definitely definitely. there's got to be that complementary component and it's just looking at it from a holistic point of view and identifying what you know what is our key goal here how does it vary between different athletes yes and what, what really is the emphasis at this point in the training cycle? Right. And some of that will be based on the athlete's training age, strength levels, etc. Yeah. And that will vary across a squad of athletes. Yeah. And because a lot of people are missing the point, can you just uh, tell us the based on what is the best way to prescribe load for pulling dairy weights? So when saying like uh, three sets of three, based on what? Is the best way. Um, we have more methods, but again, it's 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 ultimately dependent on your primary goal. Um, if you want to get an increase in work capacity in there, the, the best thing to do is probably cluster the pulling derivatives because you don't want to get a rapid decline in velocity. No, no, no. I was uh, thinking about a prescription. Let's say three uh, RM based on what? Based on a, a squat? Right, based yep. on a full weightlifting movement? Okay, so all of the research which is out there is either used the power clean mm-hmm. or the hang power clean. Right. Uh, and if you actually look at the difference in 1RM from a power clean and a hang power clean, you're only looking at around about a 5% difference in mm-hmm. the loads people can lift. So if your athlete can perform a power clean from the floor, mm-hmm. um, use a power clean. If they can't, um, but they can perform it from the knee or as a hang power clean. Okay then get them to form the hang power clean. Again, the variation is only going to be about 5% in between those two different um, exercises. Obviously, if you're doing snatch derivatives, then use the same approach, but with a snatch. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, recently, you, I don't want to take you in, uh, your time anymore, so I will just finish off this with... Uh, uh, you recently published a book, Advanced Strength Conditioning, with uh, Anthony Turner as an editor. Uh, can you briefly talk about what can listeners read about in it yeah well probably start off by saying the title is probably misleading (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
it's as we've already sort of mentioned a few times um, in the last hour or however long we've been talking. Um, <laughs> it's getting the basics right. Yeah. So it's advanced strength and conditioning. It's an evidence-based approach. So everything in there, all of the chapters have been written by very um, well-renowned researchers, practitioners. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you know, we've teamed up and you've got um, people that are very practitioner focused and people that are very research focused together where possible across most of those chapters to give us a real evidence-based and applied approach to each of the chapters. And, you know, that, that was an interesting task trying to, to manage that process but all of the authors were fantastic and have given us some fantastic chapters and it was a it was a pleasure to to read it as the editor and learn um from reading some of those chapters from those who were reading it it was fantastic my knowledge just it massively expanded during that period of time which was great right uh, and you know we've we've got chapters on most things in there you've got strength and power development you've got the use of different weightlifting derivatives etc within there um, you've got screening some musculoskeletal screening we've got managing um volume load fatigue etc the chapter from um tim gabbert which really is sort of in encompassing all of the work that he's published recently it's really topical there's um training for change of direction performance by sophia nymphias right. um I'm not going to name all of the different people that yeah, have in there, but it's an extensive list of authors. And each of those chapters um, have that research-based approach, but how does it apply? So what's the take-home message for, for the reader? Um, and hopefully it, it achieves that. You know, Don't go reading it thinking that everything's going to be advanced. Wow, some of this is going to be information I've never, ever seen before. Mm. It's about how to apply, apply the science correctly. Right. Um, and a lot of the concepts are the basic concepts that work. There are some things in there where we may, you know, mention about some more um, fancy or trendy or topical um, sort of areas. But they're the they're the sort of nice to haves, not the must haves. The must haves are the let's let's do this correctly from the start. Let's get the basics right. Um, you know, I've started this may sound a bit sad but i've started rereading some of the chapters now that they're in their final published format just to go back through some of the areas that i'm not an expert on yeah um you know and it, it's great to learn from some of those individuals and also thinking you know well where can we take this in the future um and the nice thing is because research in strength and conditioning is developing so rapidly mm -hmm. there's some information in here which we could go back and update some of this now yeah you know right. the, the chapters were submitted in march yeah. Um, the final chapters and there's some additional research published since then which we could add to this and hopefully if, if it goes well we'll add to it in the future um, it doesn't cover a lot of information on testing monitoring of athletes um, it's more about how you actually how you would train them how would you would condition them from the aerobic aspects the metabolic aspects strength power etc um, right but just to plug a book we've got coming out in the future, we've actually got one looking at performance assessment for strength and conditioning coaches, um, which will be released in September 2018, which we're currently um, working on. And we have some some fantastic chapter authors um, within that as well, which um, hopefully will complement this book as well. Mm. And that's uh, with myself, Dr. Paul Jones and Dr. John McMahon that I work with as, as editors. And again, some world-leading um, researchers and practitioners inputting into that. So mm -hmm. it's great because it means that I'm learning as I go along, which is yeah. awesome. That's the best part. You convinced me. Uh, I'll order it 
<laughs> Why have you ordered it already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should. Um, and last thing, where can people find you, Paul, and get uh, involved in your uh, research, your work, your whatever, <laughs> social media? Yeah, yeah. so if, if you're on social media, it's at Paul Comfort 1975, which just given away how old I am. Um, <laughs> and if you want to find my research, most of it, which I can upload to ResearchGate, is uploaded to ResearchGate. So just search Paul Comfort ResearchGate, and it will pop awesome. up, and you'll be able to access any of the um, articles that we're we're allowed based on copyright to release. Awesome. Um, so you'll you'll find a lot of the inf information there. Beautiful. I strongly suggest to everyone listening to this to uh, check your work. And uh, that's it. Uh, thank you very much, Paul, for this uh, extensive talk and very great explanations about this topic, especially weightlifting uh, movements. And uh, I'm really looking forward for the next time. No problem at all. Thanks for the invite. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM and we'll try to answer it when we can.